Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's good to be back in our study of Ephesians. We're going to finish the book this summer. And right now in Ephesians 6, we're entering that dark, bright, terrifying, exhilarating corridor on the armor of God arrayed against spiritual forces. So I'm going to read for us from Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I think my first prayer is to remind every single person in this room, believer and unbeliever alike, that we are at war. This is not peacetime. This is not neutral time. This is not no man's land for any of us. This is war. Would you wake us up? Would you give us spiritual eyes to see what is at stake with our hours and our days and our weeks and our lives? And will that reality press us fully into your greatness and goodness and strength on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's very sweet. We were, my family was in North Africa visiting a mission agency that has started in that region that is raising up and training nationals to then be missionaries within the Middle East. They know the language, they know the culture, they're able to do that work. And I visited that work last year, and last year I was asked to come and teach a week-long intensive for church planters on the book of Ephesians. So that's how we got to Ephesians in our church, is teaching it first. This time it was with 20 church planters who were from Sudan. They had come up to this North African country. They were there for a year. I taught a a week-long class on Ephesians through a translator. And it was just fascinating, one church planter to another, to hear what couldn't have been a more different context than our own in Colombia. Just tribal conflict and spiritual warfare, the things that they were engaged in in Sudan and South Sudan compared to what we deal with here in Colombia. So as I was teaching through the book of Ephesians, when we finally got to chapter 6 on the last day, it was like the whole tenor of the room changed And these dear brothers who were planting in very difficult places just began to fire off question after question about spiritual warfare in Ephesians. Pastor, when I cast out demons, sometimes they come back. What do I do? Pastor, I'm going to an unreached people group that practices human sacrifice to dark spiritual forces. Where do I begin? Pastor, we had a witch doctor that was in our community, and when the Civil War happened, his home was destroyed, but nobody will go near that site. 
does it still hold power? And I'm standing there with my Western seminary notes that are very scant on spiritual warfare. And I'm like, does anybody have a question about the Greek? Like, (laughs) anybody want to parse a verb right now? I have no idea what you're talking about. This is very, very different. The Apostle Paul and our Sudanese brothers and sisters have a huge advantage over us. And that is they have a very real sense of the spiritual darkness around us. We might not think about it. We might not pay attention to it. But they do. And Paul says, Christian, if you will put your ear to the ground, you will hear ominous rumblings of war. There are evil spiritual forces bent on eating your profession of faith for lunch. That's what they do. That's what they've been doing. That's what they would delight to do this week. At best, best case scenario, they will dog you, maim you, distract you, take your eyes from Jesus in these fleeting days we have here on earth. And at their very worst, they will snatch faith away like the crow that comes and finds seed sown on hard-packed soil, and you will never fully trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We are not playing games here. This is war. There's a six-fold repetition of the word against in just two verses. These things come against Against, against, this is war, the days are evil. Paul wants to tell us about our enemy, and Paul wants to tell us about our God in this passage. Paul says, let me tell you about your enemy. You might not be thinking about him here in 21st century America, but let me remind you what is out there and what is arrayed against you. Our enemies are spiritual forces bent on breaking us. Now Paul is quick to point out in verse 12 that our fight is not against flesh and blood, that is against people, it is against primarily spiritual forces who are against us. And that's saying a lot coming from a man who had a ton of flesh and blood conflict. Paul was always in conflict, so it's interesting to hear him say it's not chiefly against people. We know that when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome on trumped-up charges that abridged his ministry. He's got conflict with people. We know the story from the book of Acts, that when Paul was here in Ephesus, he had this hugely fruitful ministry. It lasted for three years, and it chiefly ended by a man named Demetrius, who started a riot that almost got Paul killed and definitely shortened his stay in Ephesus. Later, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that there was another enemy in Ephesus, not just Demetrius, but he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. 
I've got this theory about Paul's writings that in his later years, before he died, the last few letters that he wrote, namely 1 and 2 Timothy, he just starts naming the names of his enemies. Like in earlier letters, he's polite about it, and he just says, you know, I, I had a hard time in this city, and I had a hard time in that city. The gloves come off in those late letters, and he says, that dude right there, may God judge him. This person over here did me great harm. That person over there, watch out for him. Enemy, the enemy is using him against the church. He names names. So when Paul says that our fight is not against people, he's not naive. He's not saying that flesh and blood people don't cause us incredible conflict and heartache. Of course they do. Read the book of Psalms. He's saying that daily, hourly, the pressing battle is not chiefly with those people. It is with spiritual forces that will use things like our conflict with those people to undermine the faith that God is bearing in us. Don't get distracted and think that those people are the chief enemy. It is really these spiritual forces. Now, when I hear about these forces, I'm really, really curious about them. We get this haunting list in verses 11 through 12 that remind us we're not just talking about the devil. Sometimes Paul says the devil when he means this entire group. But you hear about rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. There's this whole array of enemies against us. And I got a bunch of questions. Are these demons? Are we talking about the demons that we hear in Revelation? Is there like a hierarchy in the demonic world? Who's on top and who's in the middle and who's at the bottom? Do do certain powers hold sway over certain geographical areas or certain besetting sins that we have? Are there certain powers that are here in Colombia or certain powers that are over sins that we struggle with on a regular basis? And, And when I'm up against something, how do I know the difference between a demon and a cosmic power and a ruler and a spiritual force? I mean, I hear this stuff and I've got tons of questions about the dark demonic spiritual world. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't answer a single one of my questions? I think I've got great questions. He doesn't answer any of them. And maybe he doesn't want me to become too overly fascinated by the demonic world. He doesn't give me too much information, but he gives me enough to tell me, as others have shown, that these spiritual forces are strong, they are sinful, And they are smart. That's all you got to know. You don't need to know who's in charge of what. You don't even need to know who you're facing today and tomorrow. You need to know that they are strong and they are sinful and they are smart. Our enemies are strong. Listen to their names, their titles. They're not called pawns. They're not called foot soldiers. They're not called cannon fodder. They are called rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces. Their very titles express their strength. They have real authority and real power here on earth and in heavenly places. 
Now that's a little bit confusing because you'll remember that the book of Ephesians uses the phrase heavenly places not to refer to the new heavens and the new earth where there is no evil and no sin, but the spiritual dimension where all spiritual forces, good and evil, exist. A little confusing, but demonic powers and principalities are present on earth and they're present in the spiritual realm that is called the heavenly places. We know, of course, from Ephesians 1 and 2, that Christ's victory on the cross defeats these forces, that he has the ultimate victory, but these forces, even though they're subordinate to God, have real strength and do real damage. That's why Paul brings up the devil in almost every single letter he writes. He doesn't want us to be overly fascinated by demons, but he sure as heck doesn't want us to forget that they exist and that they are here to hurt us. Our enemies are strong. We also are reminded that our enemies are sinful. These are not neutral powers as we prayed. They are wicked, sinister powers that are named as evil. They are spiritual forces of evil. Galatians 5 reminds us that we are either walking in the spirit or we are walking in the flesh. There's no other option. Romans 6 reminds us that we are either slaves of righteousness or we are slaves of our sin. The Bible is telling us That our lives are either bending towards God in worship and service of Him, or it is bending away from God in selfishness and apathy. There's not a single minute of our lives where we might say, I'm not doing either. I'm not living for the Spirit right now. I'm not living for the flesh right now. I'm just trying to do me right now. I'm not even fighting. I'm just doing this right now. I'm reading the book of Proverbs right now, which just has this knack for revealing the horrors of pretending that I can live for just me right now. There's no such thing. So that when a man or woman dabbles in sexual sin, and I mean just dabble, stuff that the world would not even raise an eyebrow or blush at, and we're just tasting and testing, Proverbs 6 says, watch out. He doesn't know that it will cost him his life for many a victim she has laid low. I thought we were just playing games here. When a person dabbles in folly, which Proverbs describes as like a sluggard or a glutton or somebody who can't be confronted of their sin, Proverbs 9 says again, personifying folly, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Rulers and authorities, they're not here to tease us or to play with us. They are here to bend us into ruinous destruction. Woe to the believer who does not recognize that. Our enemies are strong. Our enemies are sinful. 
And maybe worst of all, our enemies are smart. They're like really, really good at what they do. Verse 11 mentions the schemes of the devil, like he's got a thought process involved, like he's got a design and a plan, which reminds us of 2 Corinthians 2.11 that talks about not being outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So our enemies are not just strong, they're not just sinful, they're smart. They make plans, they make schemes, they own a whiteboard, They know how to outwit us because they've been doing this for a long time. The most famous scene of Satan's scheming is probably man's fall in Genesis chapter 3. We all know that if the devil had showed up in the Garden of Eden with a red cape and a pitchfork and said, hey y'all, who wants to disobey God right now? Genesis 3 would be a very short chapter and the Bible would be a very short book. But he doesn't. He's got schemes. He made a plan. He didn't walk up in there willy-nilly to talk to Eve. He had an idea in mind. And he asked her, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Like, he might be withholding things from you that could be for your good. And man, the moment he gets someone thinking that God is not with me and for me and for my good, he's got an open door. That's all he needs. Another scheme of Satan's that we already read in this book is to start with angry people. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Why? Because the devil loves angry people. He loves angry people. It's like he's a lion on the Serengeti and he sees the church as a pack of gazelle and then there's that sickly, angry member that's in conflict with other people and not in fellowship with them and they're lagging behind and he's thinking to himself, y'all are making this easy. I'm going to find an angry person because in that person I have all the raw material I need to get this person obsessing over bitterness and revenge or self-pity or self-justification or self-indulgence. And once those dominoes start to fall, pick your sin. Pick your substance. Pick the slavery that this person is going to be involved in. Once they're angry and they feel that they deserve better, the world is mine. They can have anything. That's a scheme of the devil that he uses again and again, even for people who already know that that's his scheme and that's his plan. A perpetually angry person doesn't know that it will cost him his life For many, a victim, anger has laid low. The devil's smart. The devil, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, they are strong, they are sinful, they are smart. They're not here to tickle us. They're not here to taunt us. 
They're not even satisfied to merely tempt us to sin. They are seeking someone to devour. We may not have gotten out of bed this morning with prayerful plans to throw ourselves on the mercy of God in this road of sanctification, but I promise you evil forces woke up this morning with a plan for your life. They are scheming. They are thinking. They have plans for us. Now the reason Paul gives all this detailed, terrifying talk about our enemies is with a very specific purpose in mind. He's not interested to get us obsessing over the demonic world. We have way too few details here, even if we wanted to do that. He's not interested in getting us to then muster our strength in and of ourselves to fight this enemy and to ward it off in our own strength because he's already told us in chapters 1 through 5, we bring so little to the table for that. Paul's entire purpose in this whole section threatening us with the spiritual forces is to drive our dependency on God and on his strength. If he's got to threaten us a little bit to do that, if he's got to remind us of the stick and not just the carrot, he will do that for this end to drive us to God. This entire section, it begins and it ends with God. That's what bookends the section on evil forces, and it's a great visual. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God, knowing our enemy, knowing what he's up to, drives us to know and love our God, to depend on him, to feel his strengths and his benefits, to trust him. We are always guilty of making the mistake that our salvation depends on God and our sanctification depends on us. When I'm saved, that's all God and that's all grace. He reaches down and redeems me. But then sometimes we have this weird idea that he releases us into the wide world and waits for us on the sidelines to see if we'll really trust in him and obey him and make it safely to the new heavens and the new earth. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. I saw a funny YouTube video that made me think of this. Maybe you've seen this before, but it was a man who uh, caught a mouse, maybe in his dorm room or his apartment, and he brings it outside in a trash can. There's someone filming him, and he's like talking to the mouse. He's very gentle with the mouse. He names the mouse Whiskers. He, he gently tips over the trash can and kind of scoots him out with gloves on, and he says, bye-bye, Whiskers, have a nice life, and... Whiskers runs off, and the camera's filming him looking at Whiskers, and out of a tree comes a hawk, like immediately. It looks like a cartoon. Swoops down, grabs Whiskers, crushes him, and flies off. And it's just, it's hilarious and terrifying to watch. That's how we think of the Christian life sometimes, when we mix up salvation and sanctification, that God catches us in salvation, that he redeems us, and Christ is so present in our salvation because he died on the cross for our sins, and we need him to cleanse us, and God speaks sweet nothings into our ears, and then he releases us into the hawk-haunted wild to see if we'll really obey and trust him. 
That's not what Ephesians 6 is telling us at all. The God who saves us is the God who keeps us. The God of our salvation is the God of our armor. The God who begins this good work in us is that same steadfast God who will, by his eternal purposes, bring it to the day of completion. If this talk of our enemy does anything for us, it should drive us, heart and soul, into the arms of our Savior to realize that the very one who saves us will sanctify us for his eternal glory. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are our refuge and our deliverer. You invite us again and again, not just in our salvation, but even in our steps of faith to realize that you are the one who will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, sustain us. And so I pray that as believers you would open our eyes to the evil one and his minions to know the strength and the power that's there, only then to drive us to you, to depend on you in our daily walk with God. Do this, we ask in Jesus' precious name.